Welcome to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast, where every two weeks we explore all the aspects of the weight loss surgery journey. We'll hear from a range of experts, including bariatric surgeons, psychologists, patients, and dietitians, sharing up-to-date, informative advice to help fast-track your long-term weight loss success. Everyone to the Australian Weight Loss Surgery Podcast. I'm Jackie Lewis. I'm a clinical nutritionist for BN Multi, and today we're exploring sarcopenia and protein intake and inflammation and a whole range of other different things with Chrissy Freer. Hi, Chrissy. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Jackie. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for joining me in your busy schedule. I know we we've been chasing each other because you're doing your PhD. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a little bit crazy, yes. So it's just nice to finally be able to talk. That's great, and I'm. I'm excited about your subject because there's a lot that's coming up around this protein and um, its effects on weight loss surgery patients. And your tell me a little bit about your PhD at the moment. What are you looking into? Yeah, so my PhD research is really focusing on understanding the link between sarcopenia, which is the progressive loss of muscle mass as you age. It's actually the loss of muscle mass strength and function as you age. And I'm looking specifically at liver disease and type 2 diabetes, but it really encompasses all metabolic disease. And a big part of my research too is looking at also the, I guess, the interplay between sarcopenia and obesity, which is a really interesting area because we don't tend to think of obesity when we think of sarcopenia. Absolutely. And so what are you finding? What What are these deeper understandings and what do you think they'll bring for, you know, guidelines and that sort of thing going forward? Yeah. So I guess just to start with, it's probably a good idea for me just to explain what sarcopenia is Mm. because a lot of it's probably, it's fairly, it's kind of fairly new term that's becoming increasingly, I guess, popular. Well, not popular, but well-known, but mm. it's still, yeah. So it is this progressive loss of muscle mass, but it's also the um, the associated strength and function that diminishes with age and sort of from about your 40s onwards, actually. So people are really surprised by that because they tend to think of sarcopenia as being something that, that is associated with very elderly age. Mm. But from your 40s onwards, you start to lose your muscle mass. And in fact, by the time you're in your 50s, you lose 1%, approximately 1% a year. And that equates to about 25% of your total muscle mass that you lose mm. throughout your life. So it's really considerable. Like that's a quarter of your total that's muscle. considerable. Yeah. And when you think yeah. about what the function is of that. Totally. Um, yeah. And we think of our muscle as being sort of like movement and exercise and, you know, muscles contracting. And of course, that's a really essential role of muscle, but we don't tend to think of it so much as a metabolic organ. And yet it is our largest metabolic organ and it's closely linked to glucose disposal. Um, So therefore it has this really important role in metabolic health. Mm. And so it makes sense that if we're losing muscle mass as we age, that this can have a really significant impact upon our metabolic health. And then there is some circumstances where that muscle loss is even exacerbated. And, you know, one of the key, I guess, mechanisms for sarcopenia is inflammation as well. And we know that with metabolic disease, there's also inflammation. So it's kind of like this, again, Mm. dare I say, vicious circle. And we're now sort of starting to learn that there's this real interplay and I guess bi-directional relationship between metabolic diseases such as type 2 diabetes, obesity, fatty liver disease, and sarcopenia. Right. And they can actually almost feed each other, which is really fascinating. Yeah. And I guess then it's a 
kind of a situation of chicken and egg, isn't it? Yeah, with, totally. Which one do you look at first? Was it fatty liver disease? What is the key player? And looking at where to start with helping patients who are undergoing that kind of situation. Yeah, and I think one of the really important things to note is that um, I guess when we think of sarcopenia, we often think of somebody that's elderly. We think of their, that they're malnourished, that they're not getting enough nutrients, that they're extremely underweight. And that is a very, I guess, a traditional and and relevant Mm. picture of sarcopenia but we're now finding that there's sarcopenia is presenting itself in much younger people especially those with metabolic disease and that it can be associated with overnutrition so they could be overweight they can be obese and still have sarcopenia and in fact it's getting it's not often detected then because it's being masked by the excess adipose tissue and yeah so that's sort of a really for me that's a really interesting area yeah Um, absolutely yeah that's if that is happening, what would be the signs if someone's experiencing this situation? What would they be looking for as far as, you know, symptoms and signals that they're getting as, you know, to go and have it investigated? Well, I guess this is the interesting part where now sort of, I guess, for anybody that is presenting with sort of um, type 2 diabetes or fatty liver disease, it's sort of, I guess, there's a strong argument that they should then be screened for sarcopenia. Mm-hmm. Does that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, because if they, if they do have, you know, a metabolic disease, it's absolutely essential that they protect their muscle mass as part of the treatment for vice versa. So mm. I guess there's, you know, a really strong argument that there should be, I guess, more screening for sarcopenia because it, it does often go undetected. It's sneaky. Yeah. And, you know, but people losing muscle strength is a big one. Yeah. And is it also a neurological impact? So would they expect changes in maybe their gait, the way they're walking, balance, that sort of thing? Totally. Or is it- so physical functions are really big one. Yeah. So as I said, the three components, once once upon a time, sarcopenia was just low muscle mass. That's how it's defined. It's really evolved. And now there's there's several working definitions, which is one of the um, complexities of sarcopenia. But the current definitions involve those three parameters. So muscle mass, muscle strength, and physical function. Right. And when that situation arises, what can be done? What are the changing that situation and bringing them back to good health? It's not a matter yeah. of just popping protein in, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so obviously from for supporting healthy muscle from a dietary perspective, protein is very important. And I guess there's sort of an, a fairly, there's a lot of evidence that the current recommendations are possibly not high enough to support healthy muscle during aging, and especially in those with chronic disease or who are undertaking resistance training. So protein is a really important nutrient. There's some other nutrients that are also um, vitamin D has got a bit of interest, uh, omega-3 fatty acids. Mm from an anti-inflammatory effect because we know that inflammation is definitely one of the driving mechanisms that drives sarcopenia but protein would be the big one and then of course exercise and resistance training is really there's just compelling evidence that resistance training is really effective but that higher protein intake then supports the resistance training as well. Correct. And I was just doing, I did a podcast with Sally Livick also, who's a dietitian, and we were talking protein just a few weeks ago. And this yep. is really timely because we are uncovering that the current recommendations for protein are not as high as they could be. And now we're looking at people like yourself to do all this incredible research to bring out the facts and um, come up with something that's, you know, on a better trajectory to protect the health of you know, aging populations, but also the obesity community as well. Yeah. But the 
thing with protein, and this is a big part of my research, is that obviously not all proteins are created equal. Mm. And so with when in sarcopenia research, it just seems to be that they kind of look at protein intake and there's a lot of um, obviously different proteins have got different qualities and, you know, whey protein and leucine and stuff have got a lot of evidence that they, I guess, they're the best stimulators of muscle protein synthesis. But when we're looking at metabolic disease, what I'm really interested in and a big part of my research is that obviously, so red meat, processed meats, higher saturated fat content can be pro-inflammatory. So I'm really looking at the role of the importance of the source of protein. So mm. not just not just how many grams per day are we consuming, but I'm really interested in plant proteins and also obviously fish proteins, having that omega-3 and yes. anti-inflammatory role. So for me within metabolic disease, I'm really fascinated about the, the source of protein being just as important. Yeah, that's a great thing. And we talk about that as well, because obviously all the emphasis is on protein intake after weight loss surgery. And it's fantastic because that's where it needs to be. But we have all different types of protein going Totally, and people relying on collagen or, you know, steering away from dairy and that sort of thing. And looking at the quality of that protein and what its role is in the body, as far as protecting this muscle loss, that's so crucial. As far as fat loss goes, what does, what role does muscle play in weight management as well? Oh, it plays such a pivotal role. So um, it's our largest metabolic organ. It's our biggest determinant of metabolism. That's why men naturally have a higher metabolism than women because just physiologically men have a higher muscle mass. So therefore it makes complete sense that the higher the muscle mass we have, the higher our metabolism. So if we're when, and this is one of the reasons why our total energy requirements do go on this kind of downward trajectory as a natural as a natural part of the aging process. And I think you would have heard this a million times. I'm eating the same amount of food. Why am I putting on weight? Hmm. And, you know, it's it's due to this reduced muscle mass. Yeah, correct. So, it's like a V8 engine as opposed to a two-cylinder little Yaris. If you put a V8 engine in a car and sit at the lights, even just idling, you're going to be using more energy than you would be if you're driving the little Yaris that doesn't have a very big engine. And that's kind of how I create that picture is increasing muscle mass, which is a hard one to sell to some women because they're like, I don't want to get bulky, but not bulky, but the more muscular you are and the more kind of even intrinsic muscle you carry, um, it's just like burning more fuel even while you're sitting at your desk. So it's a huge impact on your day calorie spend just sitting around keeping your body functioning totally and it's like stoking the fire that then it's just got that slow smoldering burn you know that we love the burn (laughs) yeah so I work um I actually work with 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 some people up here doing I, I work closely with um a group that looks at women's exercise and the reason why I work in conjunction with Emma is that I so strongly and passionately believe that women need to be supporting their muscle as they Absolutely. as they age and that it's not just about the food that we put into our mouth we also need to be supporting it from an exercise perspective and so many women I find are terrified of doing resistance training because mm. they do have this belief that they're going to bulk up and I always tell them that resistance doesn't have to be lifting heavy weights mm. it can be resistance bands it can be body weight things like push-ups that's still resistance training squats you know 
all of that, even yoga to a degree is yeah. resistance training. You're using your body weight. So, um, but it really, and I, and I always talk about it as taking out a life insurance policy and, you know, protecting your muscle from a young age is like taking out a life insurance yeah, policy. Yeah, correct. And it does, it gives you that long-term metabolic health which then is a huge preventive of chronic disease totally inflammation all that sort of thing yeah and I find with weight loss and this is where weight loss can be a real um especially with yo-yo dieting and Mm. you know people will lose weight in the short term and especially if they lose it quickly so we know that with rapid weight loss they can you know they can there's always a concurrent loss in muscle mass we don't just lose you know we had this sort of idea that we can just lose fat but there's there's typically a a concurrent loss in muscle muscle. so um during weight loss again making sure that you've got adequate protein intake and engaging in resistance exercise can really mediate that loss really protective really protect but if you don't and you lose weight and then as you know yo-yo diets they're always unsustainable which typically you regain the weight so you might have lost some muscle mass when you lose weight. And then when you regain weight, you typically, it's more fat mass, but you've lost that muscle mass. So your metabolic burn has gone down a notch. And then next time you go to lose weight, you have to consume less calories because your metabolism's already been lowered. And it can be this vicious cycle where we can see how that gets set up, can't you? And then, and then you're every repeated... time you're just chipping away at your muscle yeah. level. Yeah. And so you're repeatedly sabotaging that. And result. Yeah. That's a big one because that's where a lot of our patients come from is that I've tried every diet and Mm. I've tried, you know, and generally we'll go back to starvation, like the less I eat, the better. And we really have to get our heads around the fact that eating less and taking in less calories is definitely not going to always equate to less body weight. So particularly if protein needs are not being met. And that's why in the first stages after weight loss surgery, that it's a huge juggle because there's not much room in there. There are on liquids they're on purees and we're saying you know and the recommendation is low at the moment and we're still saying 80 grams of protein a day so it's hard to fit it in in the first place but if they're not meeting those protein needs you're losing muscle and then your fat loss is not going to be as good so that's again why we're we always talk about protein first and i think too it's really important to just remember that protein doesn't have to be all meat no i think it's good to remember that yeah it's it's something that we tend to forget i'm a byron bay hippie so I'm probably a little biased, but <laughs> it's in the water up there, isn't it? <laughs> but you know, there's all these wonderful plant-based proteins too that we can incorporate as part of our protein intake. And then that also helps boost our vegetable intake, yeah. which is also imperative, and especially when our intake does need to be less. You know, legumes, for example, you're a, they're a wonderful protein source that can support our protein intake, but also they're providing that valuable source of vegetable intake. Yeah, and good fibre. Can we talk about that for a little while, just plant-based proteins? And yep. I'm not talking about plant-based shakes. Just Well, we can incorporate those, but yep. what? where do we look at that? Uh, if I'm looking at, say I'm a weight loss surgery patient, I've limited room, I'm going to choose a protein shake what would be the best form of protein for me and how would it differ from say choosing a plant-based protein shake overall yeah so typically the issue well not the issue but plant-based proteins their bioavailability is generally a little lower than say Mm. a whey protein however the purified soy and 
pea proteins now are has got their bioavailability is almost as high as whey and leucine. Yeah. So yeah, if you get a really good quality one, it can be as high. So yeah, some of those purified pea proteins mm. and soy proteins are you know you're getting up to ninety percent bioavailability. That's brilliant. Whereas yeah, whereas the non-purified ones are down a kind of sixty to seventy percent. So it's technologies and the development of the you know uh, I guess demand for plant-based is helping to totally. push along better quality products and these are good things to know because as a consumer oh my god the protein market is saturated as oh. far as going into your health food store or you you know gym outlet and choosing protein it's like oh my goodness what what do I do here um yeah. so what, what would be your gold standard as far as looking at uh, bioavailability and accessibility I suppose in regards to to which kind of um what form of protein in a shake or a meal replacement would you recommend? Look, it really just depends on the individual person mm-hmm. and their requirements. So it depends. Yeah, there's so many. I don't think it's kind of like there's one that is the right answer. Yeah. It's, it just depends on the person. So I look at a whole multitude of factors. Do they want a plant-based one? Are they happy yeah. with, you know, obviously there's a lot of evidence for whey isolate. Like I think that's got you know, a yeah. lot of high quality evidence for a plant-based one. As I said, I would look for a purified pea or, or soy. It's about the other additives that get put into the protein powder. That's a big one for me. Mm. Um, it depends whether they've got tummy issues and whether they've got sensitivity and whether they need one that's lactose free. Yes. So yeah, to me, there's not a sort of a simple, I guess. And that's where the whey protein isolate is a good one because it's yes. really bioavailable it has the high leucine and the low kind of irritant yes. from the lactose and yep. it's flexible and you know Look, it's probably friendly. yeah it's probably the one that I would just give as sort of the if somebody said what's a good option that would yeah. be yeah but then you've got to take into consideration all the other yeah individual consideration as well thank you so yep. Overall, the role of protein, we talk a lot about it for muscle, you know, muscle retention and synthesis. What about our mental health? How does protein then extrapolate into creating, you know, does it create neurotransmitters, for instance? Is there an offshoot of protein deficiency and mental health, do you feel? Oh, look, that's kind of not, I'll be honest, that's not my area. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm possibly not a good person to actually, I'd never like to pretend I know something that I don't. Right. So yeah, that's with sort of omega-3 and stuff, you know, with mental health, that's definitely Uh probably got better knowledge. And so how does all of this fit in with the anti-inflammatory diet? Yeah. So when you kind of look at the, I guess the, well, not the traditional anti-inflammatory diet, and this is something that again, I'm looking at in my research. So um, I work a lot with the Mediterranean or the anti-inflammatory diet really is you know very the, the two diets are very similar and it's a diet that I'm absolutely passionate about because it's a dietary pattern so it, you know it looks at the types and amounts of food we eat it's not you know dictating or looking at single nutrients because whilst we are talking about protein as a single nutrient we know that when food is combined it's the combination of foods that we then start to get synergistic benefits does it correct And I think that's where food is the king. And I always talk about that. It's very easy for our community to get hooked into, you know, protein supplements. And it has its place when you are having trouble fitting food in. But we look at all those synergistic little compounds that come with food. Totally. It's just all missed if you're taking it all in a shake that's you know, then got the formulated vitamins and minerals in it, as opposed to, you know, a healthy meal that's got all those different plant-based foods and, you know, animals. And that's where the the different protein sources 
makes sense because say if you look at say if you look at some plant-based proteins they've also got the dietary fiber they've got antioxidants they might have polyphenols they've got all these other compounds that are anti-inflammatory and then if you look at some of our other say red meat it might have saturated fat it might have heme iron which can actually be you know it's got other components so we've got to look at you know I call them protein packages rather Mm. than just looking at it as protein you've got to look at the entire package so from the anti-inflammatory diet perspective I guess a true traditional med diet is not particularly high in protein. You know, it's got that sort of slightly higher fat content. But as part of my research, I'm looking at sort of a higher protein Mediterranean style diet. Mm. So it will have, because for me, working in metabolic health, it needs to have those anti-inflammatory properties, but then I want to be supporting muscle. Correct. So this to me is the winning combo that I want to have the higher protein intake to support muscle, especially during aging, those with metabolic disease, but it needs to be the right type of protein that then fits in with the anti-inflammatory style of eating. Absolutely. I think, you know, from an anti-inflammatory perspective, it's choosing those proteins that can play both those roles. So, you know, obviously just getting it from plant-based sources can be challenging, getting enough protein. Yeah. And everybody's individual, but, you know, also looking at fish um, that's got also, they've got those lovely omega-3 fatty acids, which are anti-inflammatory. So, you know, a higher fish intake is is, is something that I would sort of see with that anti-inflammatory mm. style diet, you know, lean white meats, and then of course your plant-based proteins as well, yeah. but reducing red meat. That's the range, isn't it? What are your thoughts on grass-fed and organic meats as opposed to our pick-it-up-at-coles and woolies kind of meats? Yeah. So Rain finished, what would be the difference? Yes. my um, I grew up in the country and my Mm. father worked in beef cattle for his entire career and genetics. And I am grass-fed all the way. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, the the grass-fed beef is higher in certain nutrients, but it's also the fat profile, I think, of the grass-fed beef. And I always say that if you're going to eat, you know, if you're going to eat red meat, it's about quality. Yeah, and yeah, and spending. I mean, look at how much food a bariatric patient can eat. You can go for quality because let's totally. face it, you're a cheap date after weight loss <laughs> surgery. So I always talk about quality looking at buying better quality foods now that there's not so much that we need and that we can get sort of two or three meals out of different portions of meats and that sort of thing so always keen to go organic or grass-fed or like full fat dairy that sort of stuff just to kind of support that um, nutrient profile and the quality that's going into the body as far as the anti-inflammatory aspect goes what are the key components of the anti-inflammatory diet and why is it so important for obesity and metabolic disease yes so the the anti-inflammatory diet is really, um, I think the key components of it are obviously, you know, having a really high fruit and vegetable intake because they contain all of these wonderful anti-inflammatory compounds. And from an obesity perspective and from a metabolic health perspective, it's twofold. Not only do they contain all of these wonderful anti-inflammatory compounds that can help mediate inflammation in the body, they're also low energy density in that you can actually eat a good volume of food if food has low energy density. And so, you know, it's that double, as I said, it's that sort of double benefit of not only you getting all the lovely compounds with dietary fiber being really key, one of the key anti-inflammatory mechanisms, as well as they are low energy at low energy density and how does that extrapolate into obesity and can we define metabolic disease to begin what kind of diseases would 
run under the umbrella of a metabolic disorder or disease? Yeah, so under metabolic disease, it's really a cluster of, so obesity is kind of, you know, key, type 2 diabetes, liver disease, yeah, dyslipidemia, so um, having, you know, irregular lipid levels all falls under that under that metabolic disease umbrella. Yeah. And that's kind of where this obesity surgery comes in. Is it actually the the actual mechanism of removing the fundus or parts of the body that um, readjust the digestive system is to calm down this whole cascade that's well out of balance by that stage. And then the recommendation of the high protein kind of low glycemic index anti-inflammatory diet following that is the key to kind of maintaining that long-term health of the patient so that we're not dealing with other health issues down the track. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I think so obviously for anybody that with obesity, obviously we know that adipose tissue now acts as an endocrine organ. So it it releases hormones and pro-inflammatory cytokines Mm -hmm. and all sorts of things that just that promotes this low-grade systemic inflammation throughout Mm. the body. So following an anti-inflammatory diet is just really pivotal in trying to mediate or calm down that inflammation that is occurring. Yeah, and it's an ongoing process, I suppose. Once someone's been there and been in that obese scenario, had all those drivers that are underlying, is it something that is repaired for the long term or is it something that we need to continually work on as far as you know staying in that space not having those markers sort of driving up again with lifestyle factors and that sort of thing yeah look I do find that with anybody with any chronic inflammatory condition that it's something that they have to manage long term I do Mm. I do think that it's something that needs to be um but I think we all need to manage it long term Mm. I don't think any of us are immune to it no (laughs) and that you know and you can even be looking you don't need to be obese to be suffering from chronic inflammation I was about to say the same thing there's almost that what we call skinny fat is that you can be a very unhealthy body on the inside but not be carrying the weight and that's when they again fall out under the radar is well you look okay um until there's you know some reason to go blood testing that sort of thing the amount of high cholesterol i see in patients of mine who are not overweight is quite interesting and i feel it's dietary related but also stress and carbohydrate related so again the diet's upside down too many carbs too many refined carbs that sort of thing not enough protein which just upsets that whole apple cart and the inflammation picture as well but yeah you don't have to be carrying 20 extra kilos to be living in a body that's you know a time bomb to some extent totally and ectopic fat so that the fat around our organs Mm. and sort of infiltrating our organs like in liver disease is um is really huge and it's really interesting that within asia liver disease is becoming rampant And they call it lean, not lean fatty liver disease because often they present and they are lean, and yet they're still having these escalated levels of liver disease, and it's due to the changing dietary habits. Right. So the more westernized their diet Correct. becomes, their genetic makeup doesn't manage that. We're seeing a lot of uh, even the BMI and the qualification for obesity surgery in the Asian countries is lower than yes. um, Australia because outwardly they're not displaying the obese picture but it's that what we loosely term as skinny fat it's like 
dangerous but not evident on the outside but certainly yes. happening so there's um there's a lot of there's a public health campaign actually they're doing up there in japan i think it is where they're encouraging people to put they know they can't stop them eating the white rice every meal because it's so cultural that they're asking for one cup of brown rice to every batch of white rice that these people are making and it's like an incentive and an initiative to try and calm down that whole high glycemic load and the inflammatory response from that and ongoing the kind of it's almost like an internal obesity isn't it totally and i think too that's the thing with the anti-inflammatory diet or a mediterranean style diet is that you don't need to have a health issue to benefit no. from following this diet <laughs> it's not something that you know you wait ideally it's the way we should all be eating yeah like it's everybody. a preventative not a reactive Correct. It's, yeah. and you know it's associated with so many health benefits so if you look at the the health benefits you know there's obviously the link with cardiovascular disease or limiting or reducing you know, being a preventative effect on cardiovascular disease is huge. That's due to the the uh, the good fat profile of an anti-inflammatory style diet. And, you know, cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death within Australia. Mm. So mm. that's massive. There's the links with metabolic disease, so type 2 diabetes, liver disease, uh, weight management and weight loss. You know, it's got a very strong association with helping to both manage weight and also supporting healthy weight loss. Mm. It's then it does have a very strong link with cognitive and mental health. So both uh, reducing the risk of depression, mm. um, improving cognition, it's related to reducing the risk of multiple cancers. And it's the one diet, I think if we look at sort of, I guess, dietary recommendations, they come and go and there's, you know, there's often trends and they're often the science community is sort of, you know, might be in disagreement, like, you know, intermittent fasting, there's people that are yeah. for it, people that are against it. I think the anti-inflammatory diet is probably the one of the very few things that nobody argues on. Yeah, it's <laughs> become the stayed, hasn't it? You know, you know it's, I CSIRO, I, we're on board. It's very, you know, yeah. there's a lot of research. And there's, yeah, during my degree, I'm, it just kept coming up as this is the way to do it. We have high level evidence. We mm. know, you know, there is, it's been, you know, the Mediterranean style diet has had so much research on it and we've got high level evidence. And as I said, I think it's one of the few things that, you know, the science community actually. <laughs> All arms of the science community. On that, I was going to say how I found your work is through your beautiful anti-inflammatory cookbook. And yes. I've been talking about it in our group and we're stocking it on our website because I feel that it's one recipe book and you wrote all the recipes yourself, which I find is always incredible. It's one book you can pick up and cook every meal, snack, dip, you know, entree from and know that it's beautiful food firstly and secondly it has all of those properties in it we've been talking about good levels of protein no gluten you know all the anti-inflammatory kind of adjuncts that herbs and spices bring to the party so I just wanted to stick that in there that oh, in the you. show notes we'll stick a picture of that amazing book because I I actually give it away to a lot of my patients who are trying to change their diet for the better I'm like just do this and put it on the bench and just cook your meals for your family from it and all will be well pretty much and I think I think if someone with your expertise and drive for knowledge has written something like that, it's got, you know, great grounding. So yes, um, I know it's not your only recipe book. It's the one that I've fallen in love with. But um, yeah, I think 
that's something not to miss is just finding it. It's easy. It's ingredients that aren't hard to get and it makes sense and it's the whole family will enjoy it as well. Thank you. And I think too, the, one of the reasons why I love creating recipes and recipe books as well is obviously I love nutrition from a mm. um, knowledge level. But one thing I've learned throughout my years as a nutritionist and through all of the study that I've done is that if I can't translate it to real terms, then it's really quite meaningless. Correct. <laughs> and I think that this is sometimes where nutrition comes a bit undone mm. because you can have the best knowledge in the world, but unless that's translatable to real terms and to real food, then it just becomes, you know, it gets lost. Yeah. And to me, I love food. I love, and I think that, you know, I want to show people that you can have this really positive, happy, rewarding relationship with food it's not just about vitamins and minerals it's Mm. about enjoyment it's about celebration it's about family it's about culture and food is to be enjoyed it's to be cherished it's to be valued yeah and um that's why I love creating my books because it's my way of trying to I guess translate my beliefs and my philosophies and my knowledge to something that people can actually it's tangible it's it's tangible Mm. and they can cook from it and they can actually realize that this food is delicious yeah because that's paramount to me it's got to taste good it's not about deprivation it's not about punishing yourself and it's food that you want to eat every day (laughs) yeah and that is so important to me that's yeah that's something that I'm incredibly passionate about yeah you've done a great job of that I think one of our favorites is your uh, roasted chicken simple to make lovely spices on the top and the stuffing with the kale and the other ingredients in there that just Um, make it delicious and it's lovely when you have such a health-giving meal and you go that was so good and you know for some people who have been eating that more refined diet it can take a while to sit there and go that was so good but it comes and it doesn't take long I think they talk about a three-week turnover for kind of changing the the understanding of your palate and the differences that you'll find in eating health healthy food and then it just becomes the way that you do things rather than you know look always looking for that sweet salty refined kind of flavor it's not a it's not a long road to changing that and I think that book is one of the ways to do it because there's celebratory food in there there's you know party food there's treats there's stuff you can put in the kids lunch boxes that look like a treat and you know they'll be on board with it soon after that too so yeah I think that's wonderful we could talk for a long time couldn't we (laughs) (laughs) very it's a huge area and it's really relevant at the moment because there are obviously developments in the in all all around protein recommendations but for certainly in our community and yeah we can't kind of underline enough the importance of the protein in the diet so thank you for your time oh my pleasure thank you so much for chatting with me today your busy (laughs) schedule and um, all the best I know you've got a little way to go but seems like you're um, over some critical humps in the road for the the PhD. And I think we're just grateful for people like you who spend time investigating that sort of stuff to give us, you know, solid information to pass on to our groups and our patients as well. So thank you. We'll have to touch base once I've finished some of my studies in this (laughs) protein anti, yeah, because I think it'll be really, mm, my my goal is to change clinical guidelines. Yay. I think that'd be great (laughs) to carve that in stone. So we'll do um, Jackie and Chrissy Mark II in a little while. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Stay tuned. Thank you so much, Chrissy Fu, for your time. I appreciate that. Take care. Yay. 
Thanks for listening. And just before you go, we would love to hear your feedback. So please give us a rating and review. For other interesting topics of conversation and inspiration, come and drop into our Facebook community at BN Bariatric. If you've enjoyed our podcast, we hope you will share on your Facebook or Instagram and hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.